On Wednesday, 2nd of September 2020, Mark Penders across the Palm Stateside, Brian Jackson's in Sydney, and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. Sadly, it's still impossible not to mention COVID-19 when discussing recent market and economic developments. But today, we thought after a brief regional update, we focus instead on monetary policy with particular emphasis on inflation targeting. The Fed's just tweaked its approach. So what does that really mean for investors? And might it be a precursor to similar moves elsewhere? But first, an update of what's going on more generally. So, Brian, how about kicking off with the resignation last week of Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, which I guess must raise the question, is this the end of so-called Abe economics? And indeed, does it have any implications for the Bank of Japan chief Kuroda, who's received significant support from Mr Abe? Uh, yeah, good questions. Uh, uh, yeah, obviously, Abe Nomics is is going to uh, pass away as as Mr. Abe leaves, but I don't think it's going to be a huge change in the overall uh, policy uh, approach from both the uh, Liberal Democratic Party in in office in 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 Japan and the Bank of Japan. So, you know, we we don't know yet who is going to uh, replace him. This process could take. Um, a few weeks, maybe even a little bit longer. Um, I, I don't really have a good handle on, on internal Japanese politics, so I can't really uh, you know, rank the, the leading candidates. But it, it's going to be, obviously, a, a senior figure from within the government uh, will be the most likely uh, replacement. And uh, But I don't think there's a lot of uh, divergence amongst those candidates about how they would approach the, the economy. Um, you know, as you know, the, there's been a lot of uh, fiscal stimulus in recent months to try and support um, the economy uh, uh, from from the impact of the pandemic. Um, and I expect, um, you know, roughly the, the same sort of approach going forward. In terms of um, the Bank of Japan, uh, you know, Prime Minister Abe has been a, a very strong supporter of the Bank of Japan over the last sort of five, six years uh, and, and their policy of quantitative easing. He's, um, you know, really... Uh, been a leading uh, supporter of uh, Governor Kuroda, uh, and so there was some talk uh, when when Abe announced his plans to, to step down that perhaps uh, Kuroda would also um, seek to uh, you know, end his term. But he has actually come out this week, so he says no, he's going to stay on until uh, the end of his term in in 2023. And so I think it's it's just going to be business as usual. A market's taken it quite easily, have they? Yeah, they have. There wasn't really much of an impact uh, in, in the equity market or the or the uh, or, or the currency market. You know, a few, a few little changes, but nothing too too drastic. And again, I think um, that reflects this this view that there's not really going to be a big change in in uh, economic policy. Fair enough. Um, since you're in Sydney, I suppose I must mention that uh, Australia has finally fallen into technical recession following the contraction in second quarter GDP. Um, RBA, any chance of negative interest rates there? Uh, again, they don't seem to uh, be too, uh, you know, they don't seem to have a sense of urgency about that at the moment. Um, you know, as you know, we had the RBA just a couple of days ago come out and, and keep policy on hold. They, they cut back in April, so, you know, sort of just after the first wave of, of numbers coming through showing the impact of the, of the pandemic. And since then, it's been pretty steady. Uh, they've, you know, consistently said that they're ready to do more if they feel like that would be necessary. Um, but they've also uh, been strong supportive of, um, you know, the government's fiscal efforts and 
suggesting that perhaps if, if more is needed to be done, um, you know, that, that's the way to go on, on the fiscal side. That said, in, in the statement on Tuesday, they did say that, you know, they were ready to implement uh, alternative measures if need be. Uh, so, and, you know, so I think they're working behind the scenes uh, to, to get that ready if they, if they need to do it. But, um, you know, they're just not at that, 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 that stage yet. What they're saying is that, um, first of all, the, the, the downturn was less severe than what they initially feared but also that the recovery is probably going to be a bit slower than they had initially hoped for as well. So, um, you know, sort of swings and roundabouts there in terms of the outlook for policy. But at the moment, they, they seem to think that uh, it's OK the way it is. OK. Um, and else in your neck of the woods as well, I've got to ask about China, since obviously everyone's so interested in that part of the world these days. Yeah, sure. I mean, we're, we're sort of halfway through the, the monthly cycle of PMI surveys, and I think they're reasonably positive, uh, you know, so far. Um, yeah, still obviously from a coming from a, a a poor starting place, but we are seeing signs of of recovery uh, across the region now, not just in China. China's, you know, we've been saying for a few months now that uh, China is uh, coming back, uh, uh -huh. and bouncing back from from that initial impact. But now we're starting to see signs of uh, you know emerge elsewhere. You, you had uh, a pretty good number for India on earlier in the week for their manufacturing sector. It, it bounced back into positive territory. And in Japan, the manufacturing index uh, showed a, a, a you know, much smaller contraction. So, um, you know, hopefully coming uh, through that process as well in Japan. Uh, that's not to say that every number that comes out is positive. There's, there's still sort of, um, you know, you can still see the impact obviously coming through um, in, in some of the, the releases that we're seeing. But overall, I'd say on balance, you know, things are picking up. But of course, that's all highly dependent on, um, you know, continued progress on the public health uh, side of things. You know, as we've seen in, in Australia in the last few um, couple of months, you know, a new sort of second wave of cases has sort of, uh, that's going to flow through to the data in, in coming months. And also in Japan, you, you've had a bit of a, a surge in cases in Tokyo as well, which is, is something to be aware of. But in general, I think, um, you know, things are pointing in the right direction. Good. Excellent. OK, let's move on then. Mr. Pender, um, so before we get on to the Fed then, perhaps uh, an update of the economic picture your side and obviously good old employment numbers on Friday. OK, well, let's start off with the employment. Um, the um, the expectation is uh, what we've been seeing is a slowing in the recovery of the labor market. And that really is the the central um, uh, theme. Uh, it's an un, kind of an unwelcome theme, of course, uh, but uh, Canada's consensus for uh, Friday's non-farm payroll uh, is will be a, is 1.4 million um, increase, but that would be down from the 1.8 in um, in uh, July. So and, and it's that you know that movement to lower, and we all we'll also get jobless claims tomorrow, and right, the. This, that'll be Thursday, and this is a weekly indicator, and a candidate's consensus for that is uh, 958,000, um, uh, um, which is about four times what it was, or five times what it was, four or five times what it was uh, weekly initial claims uh, before the crisis. So even though there's millions of jobs being created, there's also millions of jobs still being destroyed. So there's a massive right. amount of churning right now right. in the U.S. labor market. Um, as far as 
uh, production. Um, well, I, we had the Beige Book, the Federal Reserve's Beige Book Assessment of Economic um, uh, Activity to this afternoon, which is Wednesday, and uh, very downbeat. They're, they're, it's a traditionally downbeat report, and um, and really, uh, it's very much in the U camp of recovery. Uh, really, uh, you know, uh, you know, not. Um, uh, saying that there's a lot of growth right now at all and still saying that um, consumer spending in total is still uh, far below uh, was there you, you were uh, were uh, pre pandemic levels so um, uh, so this so the manufacturing is and we had um, uh, factory orders today too they're still uh, uh, five or six percent below where they were in February Uh and we have on the spending side, then we have something that even though retail sales have been bouncing back, when you throw in services and and, and healthcare and those kinds of things, um, uh, household services, these have all uh, fallen very sharply. So that is uh, a negative. Employment is uh, in their assessment of employment was not very uh, great. Of course, this is the Federal Reserve, so this is very sensitive, and this will be. Uh, uh, folding into what we'll be talking about later uh, um, with the policy change. But um, and, and again, they were citing instances of fur- furloughed workers being permanently laid off. That's something new. I, we, they hadn't cited that before. Um, inflation pressures are, are expected to remain modest, um, uh, even though uh, there has been some uh, pressure. Um, and of course, with the odd thing with the U.S. economy, I don't know if you're seeing it, Jeremy, in uh, the U.K., um, but is a real vast uh, a feeding frenzy going on in the new home market, and that has now moved into uh, the resale existing home sales market too. And now that is lifting off. So, and the Fed does cite that as a as a substantial uh, positive, as really the only positive. Uh, agriculture got a a low grade, as did the energy sector, with. Uh, uh, expectations uh, um, not expected to improve. Now, the Fed bases uh, this on their own contacts, their business contacts within their 12 districts. And a lot of these contacts, you know, are, are part of board memberships and those kinds of things. So it's a really internal kind of a look at, and so, but there's not a lot of expectation of recovery. So um, it's kind of downbeat and it's, uh, and it's the exact opposite. I don't know if we want to talk about the stock market because I can't figure it out. But it's a, you know, it doesn't go up one percent a day. I mean, the assessments yeah. are going down; they're not going up. So um, anyway, so that's uh, that, that's the call over here. That all, you know, the big number will be on okay. Friday, and barring any, uh, you know, uh, surprises, I guess everything will be. If we get something like in the one. The two million range for non-farm payroll growth. I think that the, uh, that that w- wouldn't shift anybody's uh, uh, views. Okay, excellent. Well, so from your comment on the housing market, um, yes, to be honest, the answer in Europe, particularly as far as the UK is concerned, anyway, it's a similar sort of pattern, really. Um, the Bank of England came out the other day and intimated, uh, as you say, using their own survey that their own regional agents, they reckon that housing market activity now is back to where it was before the lockdown was introduced. And just on the basis, some of the, the various survey figures we have from independent bodies, the nationwide, which are one of the biggest mortgage lenders in the UK, 
Their house price index this morning that was up 2.0% on the month, which was one of the biggest increases we've seen in an awful long time. Uh, lifted uh, annual inflation for housing to 3.7%. And also within that, it's left the, uh, the, the, the average level of house prices now for the UK is back above where it was um, in February time. So in other words, the recovery in the housing market, at least for the UK, is complete. And uh, although it hasn't been quite as robust, we've seen a similar sort of pattern in continental Europe as well. Do you think um, that this is a sign that the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, that low mortgage rates, relatively stable employment among high uh, wage workers? And of course, the stock market and the values in the stock market. Uh, is this helping you know, the rich at the expense of the poor who are, you know, subsistence jobs are, are, are harder to find. So It's certainly true to say that, you know, the, the, in, the income discrepancy um, between the rich and the poor is being widened by this, this COVID crisis. Um, in the UK, where the housing market uh, is particularly important because there's a country very much of uh, homeowners and so swings in the housing market activity and particularly house prices has a fairly significant impact upon overall economic activity. It does seem, though, interestingly, from reports from Nationwide, they're intimating that the COVID itself is, well, we've seen initially that they think it's a, a kind of a pent-up demand which was held in check by the, the lockdown itself has now been released. So we're getting an initial, you know, massive buying taking place if you like but we're also seeing apparently some buying due to structural changes whereby people are actually moving away from high density areas into lower density areas simply because of worries about COVID-19 so there's some interesting sort of demographic patterns taking place here as well um, more generally, just quickly to pull together Europe um, on the whole, I suppose, in terms of continental Europe, the August flash PMI, um, it's 51.6 on the composite output index, which after 54.9 is a bit of a disappointment. And there's certainly some signs, I think, across a fair chunk of the certainly the larger European economies now that, yes, we've seen the, you know, the big monthly growth numbers coming through in May, June, to some extent, July. But it looks now as if it's starting to cool down a little bit, which fair enough you'd expect as the economic recoveries becomes more widespread and more broad based but nonetheless I think we'll be hoping for numbers a good deal stronger than that at this stage of recovery so that I think has got you know people thinking about well perhaps we'll have to have some more policy stimulus sooner rather than later of course we do have now a pattern of rising uh, new COVID cases pretty well right across Europe now notably in France and particularly uh, Spain where the numbers have reached new peaks as of uh, the latest weekly numbers. So there's, the good, there's still a great deal of uncertainty about what's going to happen to the, UK, to the European and indeed UK economy going through the rest of this year. Also, it's quite quickly want to mention, uh, since we're talking about inflation in a minute, uh, the August inflation numbers out of the Eurozone. The headline figure there, so this is year-on-year -year inflation, fell to minus 0.2%. Now, that's the first negative print we've had in uh, the Eurozone since May 2016. And more importantly, the core index, uh, the so-called narrow measure, uh, that was just 0.4%, down from 1.2% in July. And that's an all-time record low. Now, these numbers are distorted at the moment because we had a cut in German VAT by three percentage points in the beginning of July. We've also looked at, I think, some fairly significant distortions caused by 
changes in the timing of seasonal sales this year versus last year. But however you want to look at this thing, it really does seem as if COVID is starting to put some downside pressure on consumer prices. And although I think we'll probably see some kind of bounce coming through when we get the September data out, the ECB has got to be somewhat worried by these latest numbers. Now, we do have an ECB meeting next week. I think by and large, the consensus at the moment is that we won't see any change there. But nonetheless, more figures like this and certainly the market's going to start to speculate, start speculating that we could see something. OK, I mentioned then on the intro that we'd um, have a chat about inflation targeting. Um, I suppose just a quick note, background to that. Well, what is it? Well, quite simply, it involves typically the government setting a target for the inflation rate normally based on some measure of consumer spending, often but not always a consumer price index, and policy is adjusted with a view to meeting that target over a specified period of time. Um, it's become very popular. Um, I suppose a typical target now is what about 2% or so. And it's why is it popular? Well, in theory, it helps to make it easier for businesses and consumers to plan future spending. And low inflation rates also help to reduce price volatility, which in turn should help to smooth out fluctuations in the business cycle. Now, so on paper, it all sounds may, may sound fine. And I think we've got what the best part of 70 central banks now, ranging from Albania to Zambia, currently operating with some form of inflation target as part of their monetary policy remit. But as recent years have shown, hitting that target is far from easy. And many central banks are struggling with a sustained undershoot. In the past, official interest rates have been cut to boost economic activity and lift inflation. But of course, the problem now is that rates are already so low, if not negative, that significant further reductions are not really an option. So is it time to change the target or indeed the whole approach to what monetary policy is focusing upon? On which note then, Mr. Pender, what mm -hmm. did Herr Powell say last week? Yes, well, the Fed announced it, uh, that uh, they are going to uh, move to uh, an inflation averaging. Um, this had kind of been in the works for a while, uh, and it was interrupted, or it was interrupted and then made more urgent at the same time uh, by the COVID. Um, basically, uh, what this means, the Fed in the U.S., um, um, Powell has ruled out negative interest rates. In fact, he's on the record saying that none of the 17 current members on the policy board are interested in negative rates. So they're already Interesting. at, yeah, they're already at zero to an eighth. So there's really no uh, zero to a quarter. Uh, so right. the target is one eighth. So um, they're, they're not going to go any lower than that. They've already back in March said QE is unlimited. Um, and uh, so there's no, uh, 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 you know, barriers on that. They've instituted uh, uh, lending programs just everywhere. Um, they've been taken up, however, only to a limited degree. Uh, you know, I guess companies, if they're going to go bankrupt or worry about going bankrupt, you know, they the you know, the banks still don't want to lend to them and they really want to borrow money anyway. So <clears throat> there's really nothing left for them to do. The fiscal situation over here in the U.S. is stuck. Um, President Trump has uh, instituted some um, uh, new measures, but they look to be very limited and they're still in the works anyway. Um, and the Republicans and the Democrats are not 
uh, coming together on this. So I think the Fed is looking around and, um, you know, they can't move rates. They, they're already doing QE. The lending is, you know, is, is not a great success. So um, let's add something, you know, and uh, the and what they're really doing is they're um, they're underscoring what their policy is, is that they're going to have a very accommodative uh, con, uh, policy for really uh, quite a while. And they're not even, you know, talking about even talking about uh, uh, raising rates. Now, what's interesting, though, is with this inflation averaging, um, uh, the the uh, their bogey here is um, the uh, PCE um, uh, it price index. And that year-on-year core um, uh, has uh, moved up in the last couple of months uh, by four uh, by four tenths to 1.3 percent. Now uh, it used to be two percent. Now it's like you were saying they never got their inflation target anyway. Uh, barely at the end before um, uh, uh, COVID struck, they were just uh, beginning to get back or, or near their their two percent on this on these measures. But they you know there's a they confess that they don't understand why we're in such a, a disinflationary environment since the uh, financial crisis. Uh, it didn't make any sense uh, given their, uh, the understanding of, um, uh, of full employment, which th- this economy for the U.S. was at, at 3.5%. Um, we didn't see any wage pressure. So there's been this, um, you know, and I, I think it has something to do with the massive output of goods and services at a, a, a ever higher product, uh, you know, uh, uh, at ever higher levels of productivity have given us a lot of stuff <laughs> and the prices are, aren't, aren't moving. So, um, in any case, that's my own view on it, but their view is, is now agnostic. They're not taking any kind of, uh, uh, you know, empirical, uh, system anymore, like Nehru or anything like that, or the Phillips curve. These are kind of like, you know, uh, out the window. So, um, so, but in any okay. case, the, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, can I ask you about, about the inflation? So let's just explain to firstly. So the Fed now have moved towards an inflation, uh, an average inflation target, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. effectively means that rather than sort of a lot of countries which have a specific target point, for example, like the UK, they aim for a 2% target mm-hmm. within two years. Similar sort of thing for the ECB. We're now mm-hmm. saying that the, the Fed re- will be looking to achieve a target two percent for the pce measure of inflation over a certain the average over right. a certain period so, so like so right, right now it's right so now my, yes exactly yeah. so we don't know so can exactly I ask you, how sorry, it's going to right so can i ask you as a starting point have they specified what the average period is so is it no. like the average over two years three years? so they haven't done that they're going to they're flying by their the seat of their pants so what, so, what so it really, average doesn't doesn't really mean anything in australia that's similar to what we do in Australia as well. You know, they yeah. have the target of keeping inflation between two and three percent on average over time, but they don't, you know, they don't nail down specifically what uh-huh. what uh, duration uh-huh. we're talking about. Uh-huh. Well, so, so what this means now, so we're below average. Well, let's say we're at one percent, um, and we're going to run at one percent for a year. So then we could be at three percent for a year. Uh, and then that would come out to two percent. But you know, um, when uh, uh, Powell was talking at his press conference, he he kept saying that and used the word moderate and modest in going over the two percent. So is one percentage point uh, is that less than moderate over that two yeah. percent? So so that's another area of of interpretation. But if it, it, I think what they cons- they think what's going to happen is that there isn't going to be any inflation. 
and uh, they're going to be struggling with this uh, issue for quite a long time. So, but if it does take them by surprise, and like I said, there has been some immediate movement in, in the post-COVID movement uh, upward. If that, if there is scarcity of goods, if that does happen, then we'll see a huge spike in inflation. That's a possibility. And um, anyway, but it's an interesting thing. I think what it is, it, it, it's taking a look like an insurance policy out. Um, you know, for the future. And, and and what's really going on is the employment. If we have high inflation and, and a weak labor market, the, the employment is going to be more important than inflation. All right. Okay. I think um, one of the key takeaways from this, it seems to me, is that effectively, well, but by certainly by not even stating what the term of the inflation target is going to be. Using this so-called average measure really means the central bank has as much leeway to do pretty well whatever it wants. So if we see inflation being really low, it doesn't really matter because when now looking at the average inflation over some unspecified period of time, where previously if you've got inflation well below target, well, hang about, shouldn't be cutting interest rates. So yeah. I think as we've seen from the weakness of the dollar, the way investors are interpreting the move so far is that it makes the, the likely of the Fed raising interest rates as and when and indeed if these days it seems that we ever see inflation starting to move up again it makes it that, that much more likely and we'll probably see inflation perhaps move well above three percent before the Fed finally starts to you know, think about raising interest rates and I think from from sort of the the, the European side um, now at the moment it should be said here of course as, as we talked about I think on, on previous podcasts uh, the ECB is currently already undertaking what it calls a major strategic review um, of all aspects of monetary policy within still the framework of its mandate, which is to maintain price stability, however that might end up being defined. Currently, it, it is slightly below 2%. Um, now, how they're, what they're going to come out with this you know, remains to be seen, but I think there's a sense within Europe that if people have good memories going back to the last global financial crisis, we saw the ECB tightening policy in late 2008 uh, when they had headline inflation above targets, they felt obliged to do something, even though the Fed had cut interest rates, the Bank of Canada had cut interest rates, the RBA had cut rates, um, all of the major other central banks were cutting interest rates in anticipation of, you know, as it turned out to be, the, the global financial crisis. But the ECB at that stage, because it had this effectively point target, inflation was above it, they felt obliged to come out and hike interest rates, even though within a month they were forced to, to take them back down again. So it's going to be interesting, I think, for those central banks which have a more rigid inflation target, whether or not they look across to the Fed and think, well, this might actually be quite a good idea because it simply gives us that much more flexibility. Brian, from your part of the world, I mean, is there any kind of shift? You say you mentioned about the RBA already. What about the other central banks in your region? Any chance of changes in there or are they doing that sort of thing already? Well, yeah, there's already, I think, quite a bit of flexibility in how they do, uh, you know, chase their inflation objectives. And I think there's also um, a fair bit of leeway given to central banks if if they don't meet those objectives. Uh, there's not a lot of pressure on them to uh, change uh, their arrangements, uh, even if they do undershoot the inflation targets. I mean, going back to Australia, you know, the, the inflation objective is, you know, on average between two and three percent. Uh, and I'm just, you know, just looking at um, the inflation numbers over the last few years, and it's only been Within that two to the three percent range, I think about three times in the last 20, 22 quarters. So you know, it's been consistently undershooting that inflation rate, but there hasn't really been much pressure on the RBA to 
to change uh, that target or, or, the, or the way they conduct monetary policy. I think there's some understanding about, you know, there's things that sort of keep, that sort of knock you off target for a while. And then there's faith, I think, in the, in the, in the system that it will, uh, you know, correct itself in the long term. Then if you look at New Zealand, they obviously pioneered uh, inflation targeting back in yep. the 90s. And they've actually, yeah, again, looking at the numbers, they've done a pretty good job of, of keeping uh, inflation in that target range over the last three or four years. They had a little bit of a period um, around 2015, 2016, when they consistently undershot, but it's, it's sort of come back to within that 1% to 3% range that they have. So, uh, again, I think there's um, uh, a bit of leeway given to central banks uh, in, in this part of the world. Now, of course, the, the, the other major one to think of, though, is Japan, and they've had this uh, 2% inflation target, but they've never been anywhere near it. Um, right. So that's that's why you know they did were forced you know five six years ago to to implement quantitative easing on such a, a grand scale. Uh, and but as we've seen, that's never really uh, worked to to get inflation back up to that target as well. So can I so ask you in terms of, in terms of the BOJ? Sorry, can I interrupt? In terms of the BOJ, yeah. then, as you say, yeah. I mean, it's been fairly hopeless in terms of meeting its inflation target. And I should just just to throw a few numbers out of Europe as well, not just so we're picking on the BOJ, but looking at the ECB over last over last five years, or well, about five and a half years, average inflation in a eurozone has been 0.9 percent, so miles below this near two percent target. In the UK, it's been 1.5 percent, so well below two percent as well. So all these central banks are struggling. But going back to the BOJ, BOJ. Is there a chance they would simply say, well, there's no point in having this 2% target since no one's going to believe we're trying to achieve it in the first place? Uh, I mean, you do hear talk about that um, on occasion, but I guess, uh, again, people see that they're they're throwing everything they possibly can to try and do it, but it's just, uh, you know, there are deep-seated structural factors that, uh, you know, are keeping prices low. And um, so I I don't think people... uh, accuse the BOJ of not trying to, to do it, but they're, they're mm-hmm. just aware that there's all these other things that are that are working against that uh, objective. But at least having it as, you know, almost an aspiration does um, provide some sort of signal to investors and, and, and households uh, about what officials are trying to do. Jeremy, okay. Yeah. What, what about inflation averaging for the ECB or the BOE or the S and or the Swiss uh, Swiss National Bank? Swiss National Bank, I must say, I don't have a figure off the top of my head, but they on the whole have been a good deal, I think, more successful, although it's got to be said that uh, they take the, they don't actually have an official 2% target for uh, Swiss inflation, the CPI measure, although effectively they still come out and regard that as being their measure of so-called price stability. But for them, it's kind of regarded, I think, as an upper limit. And if they see inflation below 2%, they're quite happy. Having said which, they're not happy, clearly, with uh, negative inflation rates which we've had for the last several months now um, and that's obviously in line with a lot of the rest of the world has been one of the reasons why I've been under so much pressure to try and come out and uh, and do something more stimulative with, with monetary policy but again I suppose the whole nexus of this is it comes down to it's and I think we talked about this on podcasts in the past that monetary policy has kind of done almost all it can now with a view to trying to achieve the targets that's been set for it so perhaps the targets themselves need to move towards some kind of you know, other economic variable um, there has been some talk in the UK rather than having sort of pr- uh, 
inflation targeting per se, they could look at targeting uh, nominal GDP growth. That then would give you the flexibility of allowing for a different mix between real GDP and inflation. Uh, and depending upon the mix there, it may mean perhaps you don't have to raise interest rates automatically. For example, if you get a shock and inflation goes up, if you've got a straightforward inflation target, that may mean perhaps you're supposed to put interest rates up. But if higher inflation leads to weaker real GDP, then nominal GDP growth could actually slow or at least stay the same. So again, it's another means of, of, of sort of allowing central banks additional flexibility when it comes to uh, the way they operate in terms of monetary policy. I also mentioned, I suppose, in terms of, uh, as Brahma said, the RBNZ, uh, the Kiwi Central Bank, was the first to get involved in this sort of thing. Um, the first of the G7 central banks to adopt inflation targets, again, in the early 90s, was the Bank of Canada. And in line with the Fed, they came out of the report last week. Um, they're obliged under their under government policy to uh, revise or re review the inflation target every five years. Um, they came out with a report last week, which is looking at, well, possibility of changing. They currently have a 2%, you know, medium term inflation target within within a, and they like to keep inflation with a 1% to 3% band. So nothing particularly unusual about that. But they also apparently considered average inflation targeting, the same as the Fed's operating with now, also targeting the, the price level outright or GDP, uh, perhaps even adding an employment mandate as well, or even raising the inflation target. But as far as they were concerned, their studies came out and effectively thought that, well, by and large, they couldn't find anything which that suggested that a change to the existing mandate would improve the way monetary policy works. But it's got to be said amongst the, the various central banks, probably the Bank of Canada has been more successful than most in terms of um, actually meeting its inflation targets. Um, OK. Well, I guess we've been chatting for quite a long while now. Oh, oh, wait, we... one, one thing. Uh, yeah, the, so before we do BOC, end, anything else, please. The BOC has a meeting next week. What do you see? BOC, well, I'm pleased to say, because normally we talk a lot of doom and gloom about COVID um, on this podcast. Brahma saying some of his parts of the world looking a little bit better. Canada, by and large, is actually doing pretty well. Uh, we'll also get the Canadian Labour report out at the same time as uh, your payrolls on Friday. They're expected to be pretty good. And the economy, by and large, is actually recovering fairly rapidly from the COVID hit. Um, it does seem that, you know, touch wood as far as Canada is concerned, you know, new cases seem to be being kept under control and the economy is actually starting to get a decent bit of momentum behind it now so i think expectations going into next week very much as that we'll see no change in policy whatsoever that's not to say we're getting anywhere remotely close to interest rates going up but it does seem by and large that the canadian economy at the moment is holding up pretty well and that's you know notwithstanding the you know the huge slump we've had in all prices over the course of this year and, and even now compared to where we stood um, last year so so far at the moment you know the Canadian, can, Canadian colours economy is doing pretty well. Okay. Um, anyone else or anything else? Or are we done? Uh, I think, I we, think still, we can wrap up there. Yeah, I think we've still got any listeners left after a half an hour of us prattling away. That's, that's probably pretty good going. Okay. Um, that's it then for this week. I guess the very fact that a number of central banks are actively considering modifying inflation targets supports the view that the global economy now works in a very different way to how it used to work in the past. And that way, well, that may well mean that not only are current non-standard monetary policy measures here to stay, but also that other equally unconventional instruments could become part of the central bank's toolbox before very long.
From Mark, Brian and myself, thanks as always for listening. We'll be back next week and in the interim, remember to keep up to date with all the key market moving data and events in the Conor Day's global economic calendar. Stay safe and bye for now.